Anyway, um, hey, glad everybody could make it out. Two things I forgot to mention or I didn't mention. Uh, first of all, we do have foundations class immediately after service. There is food if you guys want to hang out. We're teaching the very basics of the faith and how crucial that is. Uh, you'd be amazed of what you've assumed that you've known and, and maybe not been 100% accurate on. Uh, so if you get an opportunity to come to that, I would really encourage you to be there. It's been a lot of fun so far. The other thing is thanks to everybody that helped out with the Clays for Cause thing. We went to that shoot yesterday. Uh, it was pretty much an embarrassment all the way around. Nobody shot all that great. Mike was by far my, uh, the best shooter there, and it wasn't even close. And, uh, of course, he's gone today, so he can't brag about it. And uh, I wanted to quit after the first round because I beat Jim in the first one. And I'm like, let's just go home. This will not happen ever again. You got the youth championship. There you go. Give it up right there. So if you're looking for someone to shoot squirrels or flying birds or whatever, he's your man. Right? Okay. So anyhow, we are going to pick up where we left off. We are almost done with this series. We've got just this week and probably next and possibly one more before we transition into the next one. And the next one is something that I think is very important. I'm, I'm very excited about it. It was about three months ago, the Lord put on my heart where we were going from this. So we've kind of transitioned this last little bit into what is probably the most crucial part in the body of Christ today outside of salvation. So let's start here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, come new. So when he talks about this, and he talks about how we have become new, do you realize that if you, where you stand with God is very much about what you believe? Because your right standing with God is a non-negotiable. You aren't born into right standing. You can't do something to get in right standing. It has everything to do with what Jesus did and your acceptance of what he's done. Now, how do we know that? We know that through Scripture. There's countless Scriptures that we see that tell us this very thing. Now, that's not a popular thing to say in today's culture. Because how do you get to heaven? Be a good person. Say good things. Be nice to people. You've got to love. We don't know what that word means. And so because of that, we've got a misnomer that is out there. Where whether you like it or not, depending on how you were brought up or what kind of church you grew up in, if you grew up in church at all, that you have an opinion about God. That opinion can range all over the map to, A, he may not exist, or two, you've got a God that you've created in your own mind, in your own image, that believes, coincidentally enough, much like you do. Isn't that something? Isn't it wonderful when God always agrees with you, what you say? It's like maybe you should have wrote a book so God could read it, so he could know exactly how he's supposed to perform. And that's the problem we have today, is because we are not disciplined to be spiritually minded of the things of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, it says to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be in any way. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, we're all in the flesh. Yes, but there's a metaphor that's going on here. You have the spiritual world and the physical world. You have a carnal mind and a spiritual mind. A spiritual mind lines up with what God wants, what he has said, what he's going to do. A carnal mind creates a God in their image. Sometimes that God looks a lot like the person in the mirror. And a lot of times the problem we have with understanding who God is is because we logic our way to something that fits our previously held belief. A carnal mind will tell you that God works in mysterious ways. A spiritual mind will tell you that God works in predictable patterns. If God worked mysteriously in all things, because he has to be consistent in his character, we'd have a problem. You know what that would be? How do we know if we're right with God? How do we get there? 
No, the pattern is always the same. It is a repentant heart receiving the gift from Christ. That's it. There is no other way. Everything in the Bible is predictable and a pattern is followed. We, with a Greek mindset, whether you know you have it or not, you have it. When we look at the prophecies of Scripture, we look at prophecy and fulfillment. But a Hebrew mindset, the guys who wrote the Scriptures doesn't look at it that way. They look at it already, but not yet. In other words, a multiple fulfillment of a prophecy, and they also read it uh, strictly through patterns of how God has moved. So when God says something, can we expect him to do it? Yeah, but do we? No, not consistently. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, jump down to, actually, let's jump to verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, what does that mean? That means that things are coming against what? The knowledge of God. What are those? Well, those are arguments. Those are strongholds. There's all sorts of different things that are going on. We could do an entire series on just nothing but the spiritual warfare aspect and what's happening. What this means is that your brain, your mind, the way you think is not naturally in line with what God has said and done and wants. It is an enmity against God. Therefore, we must do what? Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And therefore, we begin to look and subject ourselves to the truth of the scriptures. There is no other way. You cannot go to a therapist and work your way through a spiritual thing. There's only one way. It is God's way. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles are the methods in which he attacks. How does he attack? We went through this. He goes in a road. That's what the methodos means. The methods in which he attacks. A road to one's mind. Because if he can get you to think wrong, you will begin to act wrong. Have you ever seen these things where like, You'll see them uh, in, in like, they'll find some kid that didn't leave a house for many years or something like that. And because they were constantly fed this idea that they have no other, like, example out there. Let me give you the example of this. I ran into a lady five-ish years ago. She had escaped from North Korea, okay? She was telling the story, and, and in it was that they 100% believe that Kim Jong-un is God. Not just a God, he is the God. And that anything they did against them would cost them life, which that part was true. But I mean, that is how they, they believed because they didn't know anything different. They did not understand uh, of, of like any free will thinking. They did what they were told when they were told, even to the point of sexual abuse, because they didn't know that that was wrong. And you may be sitting here thinking like, well, how can you not know? And how can you be so oblivious to realize that that chunky man over there in North Korea, he ain't God. God needs to do some sit-ups if that's the case. But when that's all you know, you don't know anything different, she said she had no clue what any of this stuff was like. Because she escaped from the futile thinking and became more into reality of what the world was like. And that's what happens with us, is we allow ourselves to get into these bubbles to give us ideas of God, characteristics of God. Some of them even sound good. Some of them even make sense. But is that truly who he is? See, that's how the enemy moves. He begins to get you to think wrong. You will act wrong. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober and vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing the same suffering experienced by your brother in the world. Who is he after? Anybody. Who can he devour? Those who allow him. See, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not that the enemy is attacking. He's attacking everybody. He doesn't like anybody. He wants mankind destroyed. He didn't like him from the very beginning. 
here's this thing you made from dirt. I was more beautiful. You should worship me. And so they're being attacked. We're being attacked. The difference is, is we have the ability and the responsibility to do something with it. To put on that armor. To stand against him. Why would Peter write this? He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And then what's he say? Resist him. If you can't, then why would he write it? There was no doubt in his mind. How do you do that? You stay steadfast in the faith. What is the faith? It's found here, folks. We don't get to make it up. We don't get to write our own. There are parts of it that we generally don't like and we don't want to read. And maybe it's just too hard. Man, I wish I could be like Peter. Man, I wish I could be like Paul. Man, I wish I had a relationship like Moses did where he saw God face to face. No, you don't. Do you know what those, those guys went through? We're doing all right. See, it cost them something. But the thing is, is that they knew their positioning with God. It never wavered. And then we get to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It says, and Jesus came and spoke to them. So he's getting ready to ascend. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, as we talked about this, we talked about, number one, the authority that he had given to him by the Father, who he had overcome death. And what did he do? That authority is put to them. And what's he tell them to do? Go make disciples doing what? Teaching them all the things that you have observed, that I have taught you. See, this is where we fail. Number one, we think disciples are born, they're not made. Somehow you think, but if I just invite somebody to church, maybe they'll hear the gospel, maybe they'll get saved. Yeah, maybe they will. But that's not what he said to do. He didn't say, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go gather a bunch of people in the temple, invite them there, share a message. No, go and make disciples. How do we know what that looks like? Well, he modeled it for us. Every one of us should have somebody that we are discipling. And what are we to do? Teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded. The question is, what are those things? What are the pertinent things? Well, number one, we have to be born again, right? Sure. There's only one way to the Father. It's through Him. There's not multiple ways. You don't get to add an extra lane to the road because you don't like how thin that road is and how you can't get around people. There is no passing zone. Like, we try to make up this stuff. We're like, well, if you get baptized, oh, if you do communion, oh, you went through confirmation, oh, if you give, you're a good person. It breaks my heart when I see somebody who has died. And I don't know where they are because I may not know them real well personally. But to see the family members saying, oh, I bet his brother met him at the pearly gates. Are you sure? Not even if they're in heaven, it doesn't mean their brother's there unlocking the door. Look at the stuff we say, oh, heaven gained another angel. That's not how that works. It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful movie, but it is not biblical. It's just stuff like that. We're like, oh, man, we don't even think about it. We just say. It's because we want to feel good. At the moment of somebody's death, we want, to, we want something that just gives us a hope and a peace and a, a moment that we can just say, like, I just, I just got to know where they are. Well, here's the thing. Let's find out before we get to that point. Let's do our job. Let's share the gospel. Let's not leave question marks. It breaks my heart when I hear that stuff because we don't know and we should. But no matter what it is, to teach, to observe all the things that I have commanded you. You see, I've read this verse, John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it to more abundantly. 
See, Jesus here is not referring to the devil, so to speak. He is specifically talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees have stolen away from them Messiah. Because the Pharisees were required, based on the law, the way it was set up, that they would declare Messiah when he arrived. And if they didn't declare it, then he didn't exist. Now, some people went rogue with that, and they followed Jesus anyway. But you see the argument that goes on back and forth. See, he's making a differentiation between the thief who comes in through the side or different door. In other words, makes his own entrance versus the shepherd, that is Jesus, where his sheep know his voice and he walks through the front door. Why? Because he has a right to be there. There's a distinguishing mark between the two of them. The thief came to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. In what way? He kept Messiah from Israel. But he didn't, they didn't keep Messiah from Israel and the rest of the world. You see, here we are today as a result of that, but the bottom line is this, is that when the thief comes in, he tries to steal from us the things that Jesus has commanded for us to do. And that, my friends, is why we have been talking about this, because when we talk about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and how crucial this is, this is something that's been stolen, and it's been stolen by some good-meaning people. It's been stolen in a number one of ways. Number one is I told you guys that there is clearly three types of baptism that are found in scripture first thing is you got to understand what baptism is it is not getting dunked it's not getting sprinkled either it has little to do with water it simply means immersion you see in first corinthians 12 12 that the holy spirit will baptize you into the spirit of christ in other words that's your born again moment we see at the first one that the holy spirit baptizes immerses us into christ and then after that you see a disciple baptized in the water and understand how this was is that when you were following a new rabbi, a new teacher, that they would baptize, they would mikvah, they do it every single time. And just associating yourself with them. But as we went through the scriptures, the baptism in the Holy Spirit was clearly seen by John the Baptist in all four Gospels. The only other things were his, uh, or his death, burial, and resurrection were found in all four Gospels. This is the last one. That it was Jesus who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now that tells us a couple of things. Number one, the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the indwelling in the Holy Spirit cannot be the same thing grammatically. It's just how it works. But it's also not the same thing doctrinally. And I'm not going to go through all of this stuff again for very long, but you've got to understand something. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says he's getting ready to ascend. He said, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We know what happens Acts chapter 2. But we see in John chapter 20 that they had received the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, the same day at evening, uh, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, and as, he, as the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. You retain the sins of any, they are retained. What did he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. So he was either very confused or not talking about the same thing. And I don't think he was confused. You see, this is something that's completely different. It's not the same. You receive, according to Ezekiel 36, that he'll put his spirit inside of us. That is, that is the born-again moment. But why did he tell them to wait? Some will tell you that if this, is, this was possible then, it's not possible now. There is no indication of that from Scripture. See, Jesus works in predictable patterns. God works in predictable patterns. He lays out a pattern for us to follow. How do we know that they're not the same and we're not talking about the same? In other words, when he told them to wait, 
for the Holy Spirit. How do we know that that is not the moment that they're born again? Well, we see in Acts chapter 11 where Peter's talking about this and dealing with Cornelius and the, and the Gentiles. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And then I remember the word of the Lord. John indeed baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus. Who was the I that I could withstand God? So what's he telling us? That that moment... That waiting, the promise of the Father was not the indwelling, but the Holy Spirit upon. And so as we began to look at this, well, number one, we always want to do what? We want to be biblical. You see, you may have grown up in a church that had a charismatic flair to it, and maybe you've heard some of this or you're taught some of this. I've heard things as wild and crazy that if you don't speak in tongues, well, then you're not saved. That is not what it says. I mean, it's all over the map. You've got some that say, nope, that ended, or that it's got to be a specific language that was spoken. We've addressed all of these things, and we've done it in depth. Do you know why? Because what I want to show you is this isn't my opinion. I'm simply allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture and say, this is what it says. Now, you may not like that. That's okay. There are parts that I don't always like either, but I don't get a vote. He didn't call me up and say, hey, you know, what do you think, Chris? Do you like this part? I'm like, yeah, can you take out that one little, little variable there? No, that's not what he says. He doesn't care what I think. He says we're to teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded. So what did he command? He told them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them. Not go. He said to wait. So we see this laid out here as, as we get this put together here. As I created a little chart for you. And what we see here is there's five examples in the book of Acts. Patterns. We're looking for patterns to develop. Acts 2, 8, 9, 10, and 19. Each one of them was a little bit different. Each one of them have a little different significance. Some are long, some are short, but the bottom line is this. In Acts chapter 2, the upper room, you'll hear it said that there was 120 in the upper room. That's not necessarily correct, but that doesn't matter. When the Holy Spirit fell upon them, how was he given? Well, it was corporately. They were just there praying. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and what did we hear them do? We heard them speak in tongues. And it was a language that other people recognized. They heard them saying, oh, we hear them saying the wonderful things of God. What could this possibly mean? So some will take into the position that, well, it's only the ability to speak in a language that you've never learned. As I showed you guys a couple of weeks ago, that is not the case. That is not what it says. Let's go on. Acts chapter 8, how do they receive it? Through the laying on of hands. Okay? Was there evidence of speaking in tongues? No, there was not. Wasn't there. Does it mean it didn't happen? Not necessarily, but it doesn't say it did, so we'll leave it alone. Acts chapter 9, dealing with Saul, later to be called Paul. How did he get it? Ananias come and he laid his hands upon him. Did he speak in tongues there? Doesn't say that he did, but what we know is he does because he says it later. I wish uh, you spoke in tongues. I speak in tongues more than all of you. He goes on and on and on, teaching on the entire thing. And we went through that in depth. Acts chapter 10, I was just telling you about this Cornelius as they were, Peter was preaching, didn't know why he was there, just knew the Holy Spirit said to go. He shows up, why am I here? Now, tell us the wonderful things of God. No pressure, you just preach now. Okay, preacher man, turn it on, let's go. And so what happens? As he's preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and that's what I just read to you. In Acts 11, he's telling more of that story. He's telling that to the Jews back in Jerusalem. He's like, who could I be to withstand God? And of course, Acts chapter 19, when Paul found some disciples, he goes on there, he lays hands on them. And we see both tongues and prophesying there. So what does this tell us? Well, it's biblical. The whole thing is biblical. When did this end? Show me the passage in which this all ended and it no longer works. It's no longer important. It's no longer crucial. How can he tell you to go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded if we leave out this part? We'd be doing a disservice. You see, that's the key. Is it doesn't matter what I think. It really doesn't matter what you think. It's what does the Scripture say? Some will agree with this. Some will disagree with this. All I want to know is what do the Scriptures say? 
So as we go, as we're finalizing this last little intellectual part of this, I guess, is that we need to understand there were, there were multiple types of tongues that were mentioned. And we went through this, a public use and a private use. Well, the first thing is you could say that the tongues were a sign to unbelievers. And we see that. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22 says, Therefore tongues are for a sign, but not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Where do we see that at? Very clearly in Acts chapter 2. I'll read verse 5, and we'll go through this quickly. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretan and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God, so that they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Were they believers or unbelievers? They were unbelievers in Christ. Why were they there? They were there because it was Passover and they were required to. Part of the law, they had to go back to Jerusalem. That's why uh, Jerusalem was packed during this time. And here you've got Galileans who are not educated people. They can't speak foreign languages. They barely speak the language they were born with. And so as a result of this, they're like, whatever could this mean? And you had two different groups of people. One asking, wow, this is amazing. We're hearing them speak the mighty works of God. The other one's, hey, they're drunk. <laughs> Makes sense, right? So we see this is, yes, it is a sign to unbelievers. There are examples of this throughout all of church history. You can trace it from the first century church all the way to happening today. It happens today. I hear stories about it. I've never myself experienced it, to my knowledge anyway. But the thing is, is it still happens. It did not cease. The second part is a tongue for interpretation. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of the miracles, to another prophecy, another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing each one individually as he wills. Now, the first two, you won't get a lot of argument from somebody that if they believe that this is possible today, these are the two things. That number one, it should be a language of which you do not know, but it'll speak to somebody. And number two, if it happens, it must be interpreted. Well, do we see that there? Yes, we see that there. But what is the context? You remember, as we talked about this, this is the coming together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 starts a new thought for Paul, addressing things that he had received from the church of Corinth. And so he's saying, now, listen, when you come together, we do everything for the edification. If you get up and you speak in tongue and there is no interpreter, then nobody knows what you are saying. And if an unbeliever or somebody doesn't know what's happening comes in, will they not think that you are out of your mind? Of course they will. They'll think you're crazy. And so as he goes through this, he's talking about there are different kinds of tongues, and to another is a gift of the interpretation of tongues. And understand something. Interpretation and translation are not the same thing. You may hear a long tongue with a short interpretation or vice versa. Doesn't matter. Don't get hung up on that. But we see that it was used. And according to Paul, that if a tongue is given with the interpretation, it is on par with what? Prophecy. He said, desire that you prophesy. But he puts it up there as long as it's interpreted. Why? Because it benefits everybody. If somebody gets up and does it, it doesn't matter. But as I was saying, those two, you're not going to get a lot of pushback from unless somebody's just an absolute staunch cessationist. They do not believe that any of this stuff still exists in any way today. Do you know why they don't believe that? Because we have the written Word of God, therefore we don't need that. And I respect their dedication to the Word. I really do. I wish more people were that dedicated to the Scriptures. The problem is, that's not what the Scriptures say in this case. 
But then we get to the third part. There's another part, and this is where we're going. There's a third part of this that will often get overlooked. It's a personal use of tongues. We'll call it a private prayer language. It's between you and God. And this is where the debate will begin. If they will allow the fact that, yes, tongues exist, but it's only languages you don't learn, or it is with an interpreter involved, and they have never have any idea how that would work, but they always have an expectation of it. This third part completely gets left out. When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, look at verse 14, it says, If I pray in a tongue, it's my spirit that's praying, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. So we see here that it is, number one, who's praying? My spirit prays. Number two, do you see anything about interpretation? No. In fact, Paul says that if you're going to pray in a tongue, and he's talking about corporately, when you're together in a service, so to speak, if there is no interpreter, then sit quietly and do it between you and God. Now, you would have to convince me that that doesn't happen, given the fact that Paul very carefully breaks down the public use and the private use in the same three chapters. So that one is one that they don't like to to talk about. But why would you pray in a tongue? Does it say that you will interpret a tongue? Does it say, I will pray with the Spirit? also say, I will pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit. So when you pray with the Spirit, there must be an interpreter. Can you imagine if you were singing in the Spirit? What if the interpreter can't sing? Imagine how goofy that would sound. I mean, it's just nonsensical. And it goes on and on. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Read it all. Read it slowly. Read it carefully. Look what he's saying. So we see this. It's the praying with my spirit. The last part of this is the intercessory part. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now I know I'm giving you guys a lot, but what is he talking about? This groanings which cannot be uttered. Well, what does that mean? Does it say tongues? It does not. But what is the Spirit doing? What did we just see before? My Spirit's praying. There's something to this. Interceding means I am standing as an intermediary in a situation between you. Has anybody ever done intercessory prayer, either with a group? Or has anybody ever woke up one day and is like, I need to pray for this situation right now? Ever been woken up at 3 a.m.? Why is it always 3 a.m.? Why do people not need that prayer at noon? I never understand that. It's ridiculous. So whoever you are, stop the 3 a.m. stuff. Behave yourself for the rest of us. You see, the thing that we've got to understand here is that what we're talking about is biblical. And it was all given for a purpose. How crucial was Jesus' commandment for them to wait? Read the whole book of Acts. Signs, wonders, miracles accompany the preaching of the word all the time. Where did that happen? Part of their everyday life. And it wasn't just the 12 apostles because Philip did not meet that criteria. He was just a disciple who went out and did the works of the Lord. There are other names listed there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Why would Paul tell them to desire something that doesn't exist? But especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mystery. Speaking in tongues 
speaking in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, are one and the same. And I want to show you this. And the reason I'm showing you all of this is I want you to clearly understand something. Is everything that I'm showing you is biblical. And we have to understand that our terminology matters. Some people will tell you that the idea of praying in the Spirit is simply praying a Spirit-led prayer. And that would be true if that's what it says. But that's not what it says, although it's in by the Spirit. Don't misunderstand. You see, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are dealing with the gifts used as they come together. And what was the number one purpose of those gifts when they met together as a church body? It's for the edification of all. Come with the tongue. Come with the prayer. Come with the prophecy. Come with the song. But let all things be done decently in order for the edification of all. So that means that when we come together, it is to do what? Edify one another. But it's not talking about when we leave. It's not the same thing. We have to catch the context. You see, prayer matters. Nobody would argue that. People who are cessationists and don't believe in the active work of the Holy Spirit and the gifting that He has given will give, agree wholeheartedly. Prayer matters. But, how does that tie in with praying in the Holy Spirit is how we term it. How does that matter? Well, in verse 14, it says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So what's the conclusion? I'll pray with the spirit. I'll pray with the understanding. I'll sing with the spirit. I'll sing with the understanding. Now, stop for a second. As I talked about, if it is only a language of which you don't know, who is just edified? Nobody. Right? I mean, unless you're, I don't know in Mexico and you don't speak Spanish I mean then maybe they are not impossible but then he also says you'll pray with the understanding which means what they wouldn't be edified because they know speak of the English right I mean think about it. we're just using a little bit of logic and breaking this down then he goes on otherwise if you bless with the spirit how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say for indeed you give thanks well but the other is not edified what did he just say Giving thanks in the Spirit is giving thanks well, but what are we here for? To edify the body. Do you guys see how that is correction that Paul is bringing? Do you also see how he's consistently talking about the Spirit praying? The greatest apostle who ever lived was a consistent person who prayed in tongues. He said it, and if he said it, it shouldn't be that big of an argument. But boy, do we try. Why do we try? Because it's weird. In verse 18, it says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So did he speak in tongues? He sure did. When did he not? When he was standing before them in the church. Why? He was looking to edify them. You guys get that? I mean, if we had Alma come up here, and Alma, if you'd really like to come up and just preach in Spanish, that would be great. We'd all love that, right? And some of you would pick up on a few words. But if she took it the next hour and just spoke in Spanish, how many of y'all would leave like, man, what a great sermon? You would, yeah, that's, there you go. I mean, if you want to, we'll do it, man, whatever. And the funny part is, and this is great, you guys ever seen those movies where, like, the person's speaking a, a language and the other person doesn't listen? They're like, oh, yeah, I think they're saying a nice thing, but, like, you're saying your mother is a goat or something along those lines. Like, we would have no, most of us would have no idea, Okay. You could be the interpreter. Should have picked a different language that nobody knows. Yeah, that's something. Anyway, but, that, but, but that's the thing. It's what is he talking about? He's talking about, I pray in the Spirit, but when I'm together, 
It's strictly to edify all. He's not telling us. Well, what's the other part? He also talks about it being a benefit because in verse 4 it says, He who speaks in a tongue, he edifies himself. He who prophesies edifies the church. He's explaining the difference between the public use and the private use. But why does this matter? It matters because it was a gift given by God. And I don't know about you, but whatever the Lord has for me, I want it. Is there any part that God has promised you that you don't want? I hope not. I hope not. If I go and I buy something and they throw in something extra for it, I don't know why, but I want that thing. You ever got the thing where they throw in steak knives? You ever, anybody ever bought that? I have. Are they not the worst steak knives ever? But yet I want them. They're mine. I know that's a dumb analogy, but you get where I'm going. It's like, why are we leaving parts out? Why was it so important for the apostles, but yet we somehow think that we're above this? We somehow think, well, we don't need that today because we've got the written word of God. We've got everything we need right here. We're right. We do. And what does it say? I wish you all prayed with tongues, even more that you prophesied. I wish that you would step out. I wish you would make disciples. Is that what he says? No, he says, go do it. It's an expectation. But there's another part of this that almost always gets overlooked. Ephesians chapter 6, we're talking about the armor of God. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded yourself with the, uh, your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god now, i'm gonna stop now i've taught on this specifically but when you look at that armor it started with truth that belt of truth what we found out is according to a roman soldier is that every piece of that armor would lock into that belt it wasn't like they picked and choose and all of the armor was custom fit to fit the person that was intended to wear it and paul here is saying put on the armor leave no parts out and we see that faith what was it the big old massive heavy shield they would soak it in water that way when the fiery dart would hit it it would be quenched it would put it above everything else above all not the most important above as in above and you would put that over there because nothing could get through that and all of the other parts had a significant factor in how that roman soldier would act and how he would carry himself out and how he would be able to protect himself and we read that and we hear it and we like it and it makes sense do we put it on no somehow we think we just born with it or whatever we have cute little flannel graphs of this stuff for you older folks okay that remember that veggie tales has their version of this you can go to the christian bookstore and buy a little costume of the armor of god it's all plastic which is scary you know, I mean, all of this stuff. But there's one part here that we always miss all the time because we're not thinking right. In verse 18, what's it say? Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Do you realize that prayer is a part of the armor? Most don't. There's no shield attached to it. There's no helmet attached to it. But he doesn't stop his thought. It's praying always with all prayer, which is interesting. Does that imply there's more than one type of prayer? And supplication, but then what's he say at the end? In the Spirit. You see, 
another translation saying praying with all types of prayer. You're always praying in the Spirit. As you can see in other parts, and, and we'll see this here in a minute, is that it is clearly praying in tongues. All types of prayer are all types of prayer. But this is a part of the armor. And if this is part of the armor that Paul was so adamant on making sure the church of Ephesus had on and needed, if you know anything about the history of Ephesus, it was not a good place. Timothy was the pastor there. Ended up being one of the largest churches to ever exist. But I mean, it was a pagan, pagan place. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. How do we know this? In Jude verse 20, it says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. You see, this is a part of Acts chapter 2, the baptism in the Spirit. The one that Jesus performs. And as a result of that, this praying in tongue comes. Now why? We don't know. We see that when you pray in an unknown tongue, you edify yourself. How does that work? I don't know. I know that it says to do it. To never cease doing it. Do you have the full armor on if you are not praying always with all prayer and supplication, which is request, in the Spirit? You do not. You're exposed. See, we have to be crucial to do this. 1 Corinthians 14, 14, if I pray in a tongue, it's my spirit that prays. It may sound weird. Didn't ask you what it sounded like. Were they showing up in Acts 2 expecting that to happen? No. They said to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. You see, Jesus gave them a commandment. They didn't know what that meant and what that entailed because as of yet, he had fallen upon nobody. But as a result, as you see these patterns, is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them in every example except one in the book of Acts, we see praying in tongues associated with that. Either in a, a translatory version or some other way that we don't know. It doesn't tell us. But the thing is, is that the reason people stay away from this kind of stuff is because it sounds weird, and it is. And if you grew up in a church in America, most of the time it's either overemphasized to the point that it's like on par with salvation, which it is not. Or it's underemphasized in which that, well, that was then and this is now. And neither of those things are true. Because what else was then that's no longer now? In scripture there's not much that they would say is salvation then but not now was making disciples then but not now of course not we would never say that you see what happens is you got to understand it Jesus laid out a pattern of which that we are to follow the book of Acts captures a pattern of which the disciples followed and none of it is insignificant all of it has an important role and we see Jesus setting this whole thing up because would you agree with me is this, is that when the apostles left the upper room, okay, whatever that was, and went out, there was something different about them. Absolutely. Their lives had been turned upside down as a result of the resurrection and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. How many times do you think Peter had gone through that gate when that lame man was that he reached out to and said, get up in the name of Jesus? That guy looking for healing? No, he was looking for money. But Peter was a new man, knew his authority, knew everything that Jesus had done and empowered him with, and he stepped up and he did it. We see in Luke chapter 10, there's something here that often gets, again, overlooked. Verse 17, it says, And the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So understand what happened. He had sent out the apostles originally, said, Preach the kingdom of God is here. Heal the sick, cast out demons. They come back. Then he sends out 70, tells them the exact same thing. Preach the kingdom of God is near. Heal the sick cast out demons, come back. They come back. They're excited. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. 
And he began to say to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, stop for a moment. You see, we see these got authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, and if you think that's snakes and bugs, you're mistaken. Because he says, over all the power of the enemy. Is he talking to the 12? He's talking to the 70. Who did that consist of? We don't know. Authority from Jesus given to trample on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy. What can we imply from that? These serpents and scorpions are tied in with the enemy. It's a metaphor that's being used. But look at chapter 11, verse 11. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Do you notice how we've got serpent and scorpion there? You're asking the father for something. Will he give you something else in return and not what you asked for? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. How do you ask for that? You see, that's the thing we've got to understand. And I know this is a little heady, but my point in all of this is getting you to realize that this isn't just some doctrine that came around at the very end of the 1800s and early part of the 1900s. You hear this all the time at the Azusa Revival and that's where this came forefront. That is nonsense. You've been around here for a while. You've seen where I've shown you through church history that all of this continue, even with guys like John Wesley and Spurgeon and some of these have events and George Whitfield talking about he was preaching out in an open air and people just began to fall down in his, his meetings. And, and some people didn't like it because it was weird. And they were getting on to him and yet he's one of the greatest revivalists in the history of the country. I mean, all of this stuff has taken place. And yet for some reason, we try to separate it and compartmentalize it and say, okay, well, you're born again. That's super. And then over here, now, if you, if you want to, maybe you should. No, what happens? A full-bodied believer should be absolutely baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because his disciples meant so much to him. He says, I don't want you to go yet. You need to wait. And everybody that came after that, was never a question that was asked. It was always implied. See, this is where we've made the mistake. We've turned it into this sidebar thing. We've always had this, this idea that it's like, well, we agree on the majors, and it's okay if we disagree on the minors. And I don't disagree with that statement. The problem is, is we've taken this, and we've made it a minor. We've been willing to just say, you know what? Yeah, it's okay that we disagree on this, as long as we have salvation. I'm partner with anybody who's preaching the gospel. I don't care what background they have. If they're preaching the truth of Scripture and the gospel, that's super. But why did we cast this to the side? This is where we've screwed up. This is where we've been lied to. See, the thief has come in and taken this from us, taken his power, taken his mission. The Holy Spirit is now just something that he's either just a power or he's not a third member or any of this other stuff that we have tried to turn him into. What does Scripture say? That's what matters. We're going to finish this part next week. And I want you to be thinking about this. Is Do I, number one, want every promise from God? And number two, do I have 
every promise from God. Because that's where we should be walking, church. It is time for the body of Christ to step into the place that Jesus has sent to teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for everything that you have done and continue to do in our lives. And we thank you that through Scripture you have given us a glimpse of who you are, your character, how you move, the things that you have commanded, the expectations that we can have from you, and that we see the expectations that you have for us. So, Lord, we are so grateful for the time that we have together. And when we come as, as iron sharpening iron, we come to grow. We come to walk in the fullness of what you have, to be prepared to go out into the mission field and do the work of an evangelist. And so, Lord, we just give all thanks and glory to you. And we never lose sight of who you are and what you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Don't forget foundations right after service.